Thank you for listening to another episode of Recovery Nuggets Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Recovery Nuggets Podcast. I'm your host, David Clement. I'm here with returning guest, Andrew Suskind. Hi, David. Good to see you again. Oh, glad you're here. And uh, the reason I wanted to have Andrew back on the show is he has a companion work workbook that goes along with his book, It's Not About the Sex. So welcome to the show. I am thrilled to be here. And I'm thrilled to talk about some of the things we've already talked about, but to build upon what it really means to, as we talked about briefly, how, how we can go into action. Awesome. Yeah. The, um, so I'm, I'm excited about the workbook because the original book helped me process a lot of things about my past with, you know, sexual identity and compulsivity and things like that. And your, your podcast with guests and Sue Merlino is really helpful, I'm sure to others. So can you tell me about what was the kind of what sparked you to want to make the workbook to go with it? It's a great question, David. So the book was designed to look at various issues and, and themes of recovery that were being missed really in the 12 step rooms and in therapy. Maybe they were being talked about a little bit, but I wanted to go deeper with the issues, whether it be shame or narcissism or nervous system regulation, et cetera. Mm. And so I, I chose each chapter to to look at something that could use more attention and and hopefully would really benefit those in longer term recovery. And I I really say longer term in the sense that some people are fast learners that could be in longer term recovery within six months or a year. Um, but some people really benefit from the book after five, 10, 15 years in, in the rooms, right? Mm -hmm. Not to say that everyone has to be in 12 step, but I do come from that background myself. And so the workbook was really a natural evolution from the book, right? because all of the themes of the book are addressed in the workbook. So instead of it just being a, an exploration or a description or a, um, a way of conceptualizing different themes, in the workbook, it's really about taking each theme chapter by chapter and exploring and building awareness and hopefully um, creating action steps towards ways of, of writing about and moving forward with each of these themes. And so it's really different for everyone. There's no <clears throat> cookie cutter way to use the workbook, but it's really meant to be a jumping off point from the book itself. That's great. You, um, you know, I know I come from the 12 step background as well, and it's, it's not the only way, but I, I found that having the steps and someone to help guide me or, you know, using these writing platforms to really process some of this stuff and, and go into action helped in my recovery. You know, over time, the abstinence wasn't enough. Like I had to really go within to see where, what that exact nature was and then, and move forward. So in your, your first book, and you talk a lot about brokenheartedness. Mm -hmm. And I love that concept. So with 
the book and now the workbook, I was thinking about this as you were talking, like, okay, if a lot of these issues came from a, a certain brokenheartedness, what does the recovery feel like as far as the heartedness? Again, a really excellent question. Hopefully the movement from brokenheartedness is to feeling more whole, right? Mm -hmm. To feeling more connected with oneself, with loved ones, uh, possibly with a, a power greater than oneself. Mm -hmm. So so we're really talking about moving from isolation and shame and trauma toward feeling connection and love and a, a sense of belonging. You know, I, I think that we know nowadays that we're biologically wired for connection, belonging, and love. So mm -hmm. if we take those three things alone, as a trajectory or as a um, a direction uh, of healing, then hopefully that's going to tell us whether we're in the right direction. Are we feeling more love in our lives? Are we feeling more love for ourselves? Are we feeling a, a sense of belonging? Are we feeling that deeper connection? And so that would be kind of the indicators of moving out of brokenheartedness and into uh, those more wholehearted, as Brene Brown says, wholehearted yeah. ways of living. Yeah. Yeah. She, <laughs> yeah, she's great too. You know, it's like, there's so many resources out there to, you know, even in the past, especially since COVID and social media, there's so many more people talking about recovery from different, you know, I guess, isms, if you will. And people are talking about it more. And do you think that the stigma is being lessened with all of this converse, all of these conversations and media just in general. And, you know, even with the uh, opioid crisis and things like that, and people overdoses, it's more in the forefront. I mean, it's talked about a lot more. Right. I was just talking to a colleague of mine who I met in the early nineties about the changes that we're seeing here in Los Angeles. And to answer your question, it's so different in 2024 than it was, let's say, in 1994. Mm -hmm. um, 1994, I think there was way more secrecy and and shame and 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 feelings of helplessness and and just not knowing even where to turn for for good help for for um, more effective support. And I think we've come a long way. Um, I do think that sexual compulsivity is a little bit behind the other addictions because, you know, as, as we know, uh, AA was founded back in the late 30s mm -hmm. and um, sexual recovery or recovery from sexual compulsivity was identified in the late 70s. Mm -hmm. So as a result, I think there is a difference in terms of acceptance and broader understanding. Mm -hmm. What I do believe, though, is that we are learning more and more and more about the uh, research and the, the, the specifically the, the neuroscience that is telling us what's really going on in the brain. And I feel like it's it's just a brand new frontier in so many ways. We're really at the beginning of understanding more and more of what sexual compulsivity really means. And I just want to add that there's so many different ways of describing compulsive sexual behavior. Uh, I have a colleague who wrote a book on out-of-control sexual behavior. I have a colleague who has a model called problematic sexual behavior. 
to me, they, they're all overlapping, but they're just different perspectives, right? Mm-hmm. So again, we're, we're learning, we're, we're trying to understand how to best help people, period. And so uh, I think we've come a long way, and I think we have a long way to go. Yeah, you um you do a lot of continuing education and you go to a lot of conferences. So are these topics something you're seeing on that when you go out at, around your colleagues? Yes and no. Um certain conferences of course, like the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health is is an organization that focuses on sexual health and sexual compulsivity. So that's an organization that has a lot of like-minded folks, uh, researchers and clinicians who are working in that area. If you go to a broader type of conference, I'll give an example out here. The California Marriage and Family Therapists have an annual conference, and I'm presenting this year, and not so much. I mean, there's there's just maybe a slice of the two-day conference is about addictive compulsive behaviors. So I think that it's still compartmentalized a little bit where there's conferences specific for trauma and addictive compulsive behaviors because I don't separate the two. I, I believe they go together. And and then there's conferences that are just, you'll just see a little bit of that. So it just depends on how the conference has an open mind and an open heart for that kind of thing. Yeah. I would imagine that the the stigma of the sexual compulsivity will probably be one of the last ones to really be fully accepted because of the shame factor. Like I know of a facility here where they have lots of different 12 steps and the um, SA meetings are there as well on a couple nights a week. Mm-hmm. And they kind of go through the back door and don't really interact. And it's just something I've noticed, but it's still... I could feel it and I'm not even, you know, it's not something, it it was definitely noticeable every time I've gone to a meeting and they were having a meeting, you could just kind of feel the like out of the car and into the back door, you know, and it's, uh, I hope that gets better. I I hope so too, David. You know, I live in Los Angeles and, and I think in the urban centers like LA, New York, San Francisco, it's different. We have multiple, uh, sexual recovery fellowships. In in LA, we have four different fellowships, which wow. I can get into if you're interested, but it's it's interesting how back in the 70s and 80s, there were different fellowships that developed without knowing that the other ones were around. So yeah. it was things so were what so are the quiet. Four? And, well, the ones in LA, because there are sure. five in, in some cities, yeah. are uh, Sexual Compulsive Anonymous, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, Sex Addicts Anonymous and Sexaholics Anonymous. And they all grew up in different regions of the country and they all attract different folks. But again, they're all set up to help people with sexually compulsive behaviors. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, quite the resource. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And it's, it is like an alphabet soup, actually. Yeah. So back to the workbook, is it so it's self guided? Are there are there areas for you to do journaling or answering of questions? How is it laid out? There is a lot of opportunity to answer questions and actually write in the workbook if you choose to. 
Um, it doesn't have to be self-guided. It can be something that you can organize a small group of, of your um, comrades, whoever they might be. Yeah. It could be something you do with your therapist or counselor. Um, it's really intended to be something that you can use in, in a number of different ways, but more than anything to write, right? Because as you and I know, writing is another way of processing. And journaling, just journaling in general, is a fantastic tool of recovery. And this just gives um, actual direction to the kind of writing, again, with the different themes um, that are talked about. So chapter one, for instance, is emotional resilience. And so there's lots and lots of opportunity to write based on some ideas that I put together to, to just write and, and brainstorm and consider uh, what are the ways that you might want to go um, toward what I call emotional resilience. And I won't go into all the details mm -hmm. right now, but it's... Um... Buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and and so it's it's really a jumping off point for for giving yourself a space. You know, when, when I was early in recovery, I would take my journal on hikes with me and I would go somewhere to the, we have a lot of mountains here in, mm -hmm. outside of Santa Monica. And I would just go somewhere and I would just find a spot and, and I would write. And I would call it my, my time with God or my time with my higher power, mm -hmm. but it was also my time to listen to a deeper voice within me. And uh, however that voice came through me, I, I always found that it was very fortifying for my recovery because I wasn't just keeping everything in my head. I was actually letting things out. Um, that's, I think, why therapy is is so helpful. It's letting things out and not letting them um, burden you. So yeah. yes, it's it's um, the whole book is based on lots and lots of writing opportunities. That's great. Yeah, journaling is, I find with journaling, to kind of piggyback on what you're saying, when I journal in the morning, whatever the chitter treader is, I can get it out to my non-judgmental journal that's just sitting here for me. It doesn't really matter what it is. I can just dump it and then right. go to go into my day. Uh, where if I let it build up, you know, it gets a little, it can get a little fuzzy up there. So that's cool. So does it also um, have prompts for? you know, walks, hikes, physical exercise, meditation throughout it the talks, book. Yeah, it 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 really is meant to be something to carry throughout the book. I don't know if I explicitly um, remind people in each chapter. There is a chapter that is, talks about uh, the wisdom of the nervous system and um, what I call the rhythm within. And the rhythm within is to me is really super valuable in, in recovery and healing in general, because I don't know about you, David, but I, I'm a busy holic, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I have always had to do lists. Um, I, I, I stay way too busy. You're laughing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you have your to-do list in front of you right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. There's nothing wrong with the to-do list, right? In moderation, but sure. when it becomes perfectionistic, or or when it becomes 
rigid, that's that's when it's problematic. And so in the chapter about nervous system regulation and the rhythm within, it, it's really about mindfulness. It's about taking a pause. It's about slowing down. And it's about exploring how can you do that? Because again, there's no cookie cutter way to slow down. I can't tell you, David, this is what you need to do. What the prompt is, is something more like, what would help you slow down enough to really listen to the rhythm within, right? So you get yeah. to explore and and write about when that has worked for you historically and what you might want to do differently or 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 continue at this point. Yeah. So, so in all of your experience of working with people over the years, okay, so, you know, like in, in the 12 step I'm in, we don't really focus on what the particular drug was. It's really about the addiction and how we can treat that. So, you know, you hear a lot about infidelity. Uh, for me, I was very promiscuous when I was younger. Uh, some people get wrapped up in porn and other outlets that are, that's where the compulsivity is. Right. Do you focus more on not necessarily that, but kind of the brokenheartedness that lies beneath it in your work? The way I see the arc of the book is starting with what I call trauma healing, right? Mm -hmm. What what in the past has caused the brokenheartedness? I actually start the workbook with with these questions. And I wasn't sure whether to start it, but I felt it was important for people to begin to look at what got them into the rooms or what got them into a healing process around their addictive compulsive behaviors. And so I, I start the book with with what is the brokenheartedness? What what do you know about that part of you? And what is it that has allowed you to recognize that and to ask for help, right? So the first portion of the book, and I don't spend a whole lot of time there, but is really about the past and 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 the the healing of the past the trauma healing the mm -hmm. brokenheartedness healing etc right i i do focus more on the present tense in the workbook and things like mindfulness and nervous system regulation and and um, self-compassion and and other centeredness you know things like that that are more about the present and how to really be able to observe yourself in the here and now, right? That's kind of the definition of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And then the last few chapters are about the future, right? It's, it's about visioning, it's about contentment, it's about sexual health. It's about those things that give you more of an opportunity to, to ask yourself, what, what is, in my heart of hearts, what do I really, really want? And what is it that maybe I've thought about, but I haven't really um, gone for, for whatever reason. So I do have that arc from past to present to future. And for me, that's really important to recognize because both as a therapist and a person in recovery, that that's really been my, my own experience is the trauma healing, the brokenheartedness, moving towards the present, really being you know, come, my, I had a, a therapist who used to say, to cover the ground that you stand on, right? That's the present tense. And yeah. then and then looking at the future, then looking at 
what what would be that vision that would be really fun and and exciting and liberating and and meaningful and purposeful that's great so i was thinking about what you just said there and i had a question written down so for someone that's really had problems with sexual compulsivity the goal i guess the goal or the hope with the work that they're doing what would it look like and to have a healthy relationship to sex because we all have that drive for sex and you know food is another one where like if you're an obsessive eater you still have to eat to survive and then sexual drive is innate it's just kind of there how do we how does this type of work if someone's kind of like ah, i don't think i'll i have a healthy relationship or even know what it would look like to have a healthy um safe sex life is that is that a good question as far it's a as great, yeah 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 i i think you're you and i touched on this in our last conversation but i want to talk about it with a sort of refreshed perspective yeah. mm-hmm. so first of all just to remind your your listeners that any kind of sexual compulsivity is really an intimacy challenge or an intimacy mm. problem right we need to remember that underneath the behavior are really deep challenges with intimacy and we've talked before david about attachment ruptures and so um the idea behind all of this i couldn't agree more food sex money are Mm -hmm. all areas of our life that we live with all the time but but how do we integrate it in healthier ways how do we integrate it in ways that really work for us rather than against us and with with sex in particular it's so different for everyone so um again in the workbook it's it's really meant to have people explore and and consider different options and and um play with the possibilities but sexual health and i can talk more about the camps out there because there is a little bit of territoriality in this um in our world (laughs) right exactly and it shows up everywhere but it does in, in this area too sexual health which i i i First of all, I think the term sexual health has been overlooked in so many ways by by so many people, including clinicians sometimes. Mm-hmm. And sexual health is just as important as emotional health, mental health, uh, physical health, uh, spiritual health. And the thing about sexual health is that we're talking about how do we integrate sex and intimacy into our lives in healthier ways? right how do we integrate sex and intimacy into our lives in healthier ways and the world health organization talks about and i don't have the definition in my head but basically sexual health is about consensual uh informed um experiences with another person where the sexual expression is can be pleasurable and fun and liberating and um medically safe it's not the first thing but hopefully yeah um, people are engaging in safer uh sex and and so it's something that's expansive it's something that is based on asking yourself those deeper questions of the kind of sex and the Mm -hmm. kind of sexual experiences and i'm this could be with another person or it could be with yourself it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be relational sex but either way um 
there's this really steep learning curve around what what is your form of sexual expression and because out of control sexual behavior is so precarious and sometimes dangerous mm. um, in various ways there's consequences people can die in certain circumstances sure um just like with any compulsive addictive uh, behavior but we're talking about how to how to um kind of redefine what sex means to you and this is very exciting to me because in the 12-step rooms this does not get talked about very often occasionally people will use the term sexual health or talk about pleasure mm -hmm. um, and an ex exploration in that way but oftentimes it's something that isn't talked about because the focus is still on safer behaviors uh stopping the dangerous um destructive or self-destructive behaviors mm -hmm. and so it's for me it was very um it was this opportunity for me to to feel less confined and mm -hmm. and that i had more opportunity to really look at truly what would be in alignment with who i am as a human being yeah there's a lot of freedom in that and um I know it's, uh, we always think about when people get in recovery, there just has to be this abstinence, like hard abstinence. But I guess what I'm hearing from you is as time goes on and you get a better relationship with the term sexual health and well-being, then it opens it up to, okay, these are my boundaries, but I still want to have fun with it and enjoy it with either myself or my partner. Exactly. I think that part of what I want to emphasize is that a lot of folks who are in sexual recovery, so I, I call it sexual recovery, recovery from sexual compulsivity, um, it's always about timing when it comes to looking at sexual health and, and moving towards expansiveness, right? Because you're right, at first, when I went into program back in 94, I I needed I know it was a long time ago 30 years. I was going to say I, you celebrate 30 years. Exactly, that's right. That's awesome. But I thank you. But I needed to have a period of abstinence. I needed to find a way to modify my daily seeking, chasing, searching and so that was necessary. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I held on to that rigidity and that structure for myself a little bit longer than I think was helpful. Mm -hmm. But um, but I want to say that when somebody considers looking at things like pleasure and expansive sex and, and enjoyable, fun, liberating sex, that's when it's helpful to talk about this with a sponsor, with a therapist or counselor, or with somebody who really understands the kind of the tenderness that goes along with with considering these possibilities. Yeah, you you often talk about someone who's emotionally safe as well. You know that I've I've heard you use that as well, and that's um, I think that's super important. You know, when we get into recovery, we think, oh, I've got to meet everyone, and everyone's here. That wasn't my experience, but. I did need to find one or two people I could really learn to be more intimate with and share what was really going on and just let them hold space for me and just kind of know that if I went there with something, it would stay there, but I could express it as well. 
I'm so glad that you had that, David, because not everybody does. And to me, that's one of the keys of long-term sustainable recovery, mm -hmm. to have those folks who are in your corner, who you can truly count on, who are reliable and dependable and, and able to be un unconditionally loving of you. And it sounds like you had some of that early on, which is, I had yeah. that as well. And that's fantastic. Yeah. And I still do, you know, have, I talk to my sponsor once a week. Um, I've got another really good friend in recovery. We talk every Sunday at eight o'clock and my best friend, we still talk, you know, we just, it's, there's about four or five guys that are my network and some days it's just casual, but there are other days where we, we share what's really going on, what our fears are insecurities and how we, like you talked about emotional resiliency, like how we got through it. That's and right. it can be work stuff. It can be relationship stuff. It can be mm -hmm. traffic. It doesn't matter because if I feel like if we don't deal with those little things that bother us, that gets us to the edges of that, um, kind of our nervous system being deregulated. And that's where people in recovery will eventually get to wanting to grab that old tool. Exactly. No, I, I so appreciate that you have a, a, like a men's group around you and a colleague of mine calls them our dolphins. Oh, <laughs> you cool. <know> the, <laughs> the, the people around us who are good communicators and who are reliable and loyal and like to play and, and have fun. And so, um, yeah, it sounds like you have some cool dolphins around you. Oh, no doubt. Now, do you still, do you still go to meetings? You still have a sponsor? I do. I do. I'm still involved in, in 12 step and, um, my favorite part, I love, I, I love my meetings, but I've always gone to retreats, oh, uh, wow. weekend retreats and my retreats have always been a pillar for me. And I think the reason for me is it's always been a way for me to slow down and mm -hmm. to unplug and to be around, we used to have up to 30 people at our retreats. We've, we had to move retreat centers. So now we have a smaller number, mm -hmm. but it's, it's, this, it's actually the same folks that I've known since the nineties, many of them oh, wow. occasionally we'll have some newcomers, but it's, it's really beautiful. And, and just like group therapy, which we've talked about before, David, mm. it's having those people around us who really, really get us, who really, you know, where we feel seen and heard and understood and respected and valued. And, and also where we can get some feedback. Cause it, of course in meetings, um, it, there's no crosstalk generally speaking, Sure, but in retreats, we, we have a weekend together and we get to really hang out and, and talk more openly and without those constraints. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it, kind of speaks to accountability within right. you know, your group because uh we're big talkers on the phone not texting because you can hide behind a text where as if you and i talk every week and one week i you're you're good and the next week you're good and then that third week you're kind of like hey your your tone is down then i might say right. hey is, right. what's is there something really going on with you what's happening wow that's great so you have that foundation so you you know when someone might be a little bit off yeah that's yeah great. and then sometimes just asking hey are you all right you know yeah kind of opens the door for them for sure i, I wanted to switch gears a little sure. bit 
but specifically around um, the idea of being down, because I think in program, oftentimes there's an emphasis on what's wrong. Mm -hmm. And I've learned that unless we talk about what's right, um, we're missing something. And I studied coaching and positive psychology about 20, well, almost 25 years ago at this point, and um, was very involved in, in coaching. And the thing that I love about positive psychology is that it, it really is, an, there's such an alignment with 12-step recovery, because they're really talking mostly about you know, what's going right for you? What What is it that really matters most to you? Uh, mm. what, what gives you a reason to wake up in the morning? Um, which all of these questions, by the way, are in the cultivating contentment chapter. Um, okay. Because I, I, I think it, it would be a loss to just talk about what's wrong or, or what's brokenheartedness or, I mean, all of that yeah. deserves attention too. But if we don't build capacity for the positive things in our life, we're, we're missing the boat. And I, I mm. think sustainable recovery is really about how do we go from feeling a bit constricted, which I needed to do initially, to a more expansive um, life, both in, in terms of what's happening out externally, but also what's happening internally, right? So internally, um, I'll give you an example. I, I believe that a lot of folks in um, recovery from sexual compulsivity have difficulty receiving love. Mm. Okay, difficulty receiving love. And this has been a healing trajectory in my life um, because I was super self-sufficient and and didn't think anybody else could could really help because I I had to do it on my own. And of course, those messages came from childhood and from learning really early on to be super autonomous, which, you know, it has its pluses, but ultimately it's not not a terrific thing. But but <laughs> as we know. Yeah, yeah we, we wear it like a badge, right? And early. Yeah. Yeah. So asking for help and being vulnerable enough to 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 know when we need help and 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 what do we need help with is actually a way of of receiving love right if for instance my grandmother every time i think about this i think about her she's not around anymore but she was the most dependable unconditionally loving um just the just someone in my life who believed in me way more than i believed in myself and um I, that was my template of love. So I, I, I learned her and my dog, that is. Um, yeah. I grew up with an awesome Siberian Husky. And the two of them were, were just, you know, helped me feel okay with myself, right? Helped me feel more comfortable in my skin. But receiving love is, is such a, a lifelong pursuit for me, and I think for many others. And our nervous systems sometimes are used to kind of holding um, life in a certain way. And and my take on it and I, my belief is that if we can expand just a little bit at a time to hold a little bit more love in our lives mm. and to really know that, that, that people are there, like the maybe the men that you were talking about, because yeah. they want to be there and, and, and you want to 
um, you want to believe and and be able to take in whatever they they have to offer, that that's kind of the ultimate um, example of positive psychology. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because um, I don't go to as many meetings as I used to, um, but I do try to be more in the what's going right mode of life. And that I think that piggybacks with gratitude and and really, yes. you know, I was I felt entitled a lot with when I was younger, like oh this should this is just how it should be with that same mentality of like I've got to do it all on my own and and uh, it ends up being very lonely that that mindset and the you know mm-hmm. my one of my really good friends is personal trainer and he we talk a lot about mindset like what's your mm-hmm. mindset going into this and. And recovery is also about moving from the mind to the heart, you know? And so the, the gratitude has really helped shift that for me. And, um, the other day I was looking at my, I don't know if you have Apple products, but you know, when you go on your photos, there's a section where it just says people. And if you, if you tap on the people, it basically shows the guys on my network, my family, and it's probably like 14 people. And I realized I'm like, that's my life right there in those people. Wow. Because I take the most pictures of them. Yeah. And it was this good metaphor of like such a contradiction from that last day of using mm. being so alone to there's there's the men's group, my partner Janet, my mom, my aunt, my dad, and then grandkids. So you go, oh my gosh, wow. That's, That's a long way from yeah. So I'm well, glad you touched on that and moving into more, more bitty, itty bits of love. Yeah. Well, I, I think you almost said this, but it really speaks to the isolation of any kind of addictive compulsive cycles mm-hmm. and how almost everybody, pretty much everybody coming into uh, their recovery comes from a place of, of shame and secrecy and isolation. Mm-hmm. And so what a beautiful thing to do. I'm going to have to check that out on my iPhone when I get off this call. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, it's like we touched on this in our previous conversation, but there's your people and there's the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And it's really our job in life to cultivate the relationships with our people. And totally. I, it sounds like you've really done that, David. It sounds beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. And um, you kind of touched on it. You said chasing earlier. Yeah. And those people like your grandma, even like the grandma, your grandmother and the the dog that you've spoken of. Yeah. You don't have to chase them. And I don't, anybody in that, those people and faces in my photos, I don't have to chase them. They're, they're in my life. What a, what a switch. (laughs) And, and as you say that, what, what happens to your Heart or to your to your body. What what are you aware of anything when you talk about those fourteen people? Yeah, it gets warm. Yeah, you, know, you feel relaxed. You smile. Yeah, um, yeah. And you you talk a lot about that with like the um, somatic experiencing type of. Um, you do you you use brain spotting, correct? Mostly brain spotting. I have a background in somatic experiencing, but I I I think that especially as men, uh, we're often talking heads, right? And so there's no 
mistake that David Byrne and the Talking Heads right. named named their group after that. <laughs> but you're right. It's like how do we get into our hearts? How do we uh, get into our bodies? How do we integrate mind, body, and spirit? And for everybody, it's different, of course. But it's in the book and the workbook. There's an invitation again and again to checking in with what it's like, you know, to to be identifying something that is heartwarming because that's basically what you just what you just did yeah yeah thanks for pointing that out that's cool yeah sure uh, yeah and i and you know sometimes when i get off track maybe i'm kind of being in my will up in my head i get tight i can feel it that's right you know and i and i feel like when i'm in a maybe a higher powers will or kind of what's meant for me it is heartwarming it's relaxed it's a good flow and the differences are stark. They are. And when you're able to pay attention, right, and 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 mindfully, you know, do a little bit of a, a body scan and say, mm-hmm. oh, my, my shoulders are tense or, oh, my belly is nice and soft or because generally, even if we have one part of our body that is tight or stiff, we can also locate a part in our body that's actually more um calm and, and peaceful. So it's just a, a reminder that generally generally we're holding both. Um, but I wanted to say about the the somatic piece, you know, checking in with the body is is that it's really an art. I mean, if if an individual can pay attention to when they feel more regulated, right? When they're feeling more like themselves, basically. Um, I, I I like alliteration. So regulated, resilient, and resourceful. Mm. It, when they're feeling more in that uh, zone, right, that sweet spot uh, within themselves, um, if they can just be aware of that and 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 know, oh, wait a second, I'm I'm feeling really anxious. I'm ruminating about what happened at work yesterday, and um, and I can't get this off this little anxious cycle. That that may be a mild dysregulation, but just being aware of one versus the other can in itself be very empowering. And of course, it's more in-depth than that, but I just wanted to mention that yeah. because we know more and more about the nervous system and because it's it's not really rocket science, it's just being able to access what's going on inside of me at any given time. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, especially the part about maybe your neck is tight and so we focus on that but that doesn't mean that maybe my legs are relaxed and you know we tend to focus on what's bothering us and totally discount that the other 70 percent of us is still okay so that's that's great i'm glad you pointed that out right i mean pain always grabs our attention but (laughs) it's just that's the human condition (laughs) yes but if we're able to notice oh okay so i've got this in my body, where else am I feeling more grounded and peaceful? Right. Yeah. So, so it's, yeah. it's, it's practice. It is practice. And uh, I was, before we get out of here, I was, I was just thinking about, I saw this video or documentary and, they, and we're talking about animals when they are chased by a lion or something that's going to kill them, but they get away. If you watch them, they will shake and jump and shake and they literally are shaking it off and then they will run off calmly. And, but we don't do that. No. It's, but it's there so are funny. a lot of, there are a yeah. lot of um, exercises and tapping yes. and things that you can do 
yeah. to kind of bring yourself back <clears throat> to regulation. So exactly, it's it's so funny you say that because <clears throat> that was the first video that we saw in the very first training of somatic experiencing. Because really? the, the founder Peter Levine wrote a book called "Waking the Tiger," and and it was based on that particular understanding that actually when a gazelle is being chased by the tiger, the gazelle plays dead. It doesn't mm. um, it doesn't run after a certain point because it it knows it's going to get caught. But does the tiger want to eat a, a a dead gazelle? No, the, the 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 tiger actually goes away because he thinks the gazelle is dead, and that's right. the The gazelle, after the coast is clear, mm. gets up, wakes up after this dissociative state that it, that it needs to do to survive, and and shakes it off like almost like an epileptic seizure. Yeah. So you're you're absolutely right. It's it's really something that as humans we generally hold that that kind of um reaction because it's too embarrassing or people say oh it's okay just be be okay when a good paramedic for instance would actually tell someone after an accident let let the shaking go on as long as you need it to let the tears flow it's mm. okay i'm right here with you right that's trauma healing from the very, very beginning of a traumatic moment. It doesn't happen that often, but paramedics are learning more and more and more about this concept and understanding that to let out the stored energy is actually where the healing begins, where the release and the discharge of that moment um, gets let out rather than um, holding on to it and, uh, and, and it becoming cumulative. Man, powerful I know. stuff. It's so powerful. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad that we got to do this again. I wanted to get your uh your newest recovery nuggets with the the workbook and uh, anything else fresh and new you'd like to share with people. Sure. So, let's see. I, I guess the the recovery nugget that that I want would want most people to hear is is that everything we're talking about is really about love. Mm. Right. When we're talking about recovery and healing, it's about giving and receiving love in a way that hopefully is um, safe enough that that feels um, like you have the capacity for it, like you're surrounding yourself with people who you really can trust and and respect and and who trust and respect you. and And so underneath all of this, like we talked about earlier, it is about intimacy, right? It's about being able to be fully yourself and to have others who can really hold that intention with you. And and lastly, what I would say about all of this, David, is that there's no right or wrong about recovery from sexual compulsivity. In order to stay on track, you know, just like... Um, every meeting pretty much says, you know, keep coming back, mm -hmm. keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back and, and know that it's just, you know, it's just one footstep in front of the other. Um, I always say to myself when I'm overwhelmed, I say something like, um, 
it, it's okay. Just just put one foot in front of the other and let go of the results. And and that's really what I want my the, your listeners to hear is that there's a lot of imperfection, um, and there's a lot of stumbling and fumbling. And and yet, if you keep coming back and keep trying, and I think you can attest to this, David, as well as myself, um, just lean into the love and and know that there's folks out there who really, really care about you and want the best for you. Thank, Thank you for being on the show today. It's, it's my pleasure, David. I really, really appreciate it. Recovery Nuggets podcast and guests are not representatives of any 12-step program. I'm not a doctor, counselor, or therapist. I share my experience, strength, and hope. Guests of the show share their personal experiences and opinions. Take what you like and leave the rest. Mm-hmm.